session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dhulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dhulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Facebook, uh, or Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. <clears throat> Before I do um, the discussion on the book from this past week, I wanted to discuss the book for this week, which is Subliminal by Leonard Melodnow. Uh, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior by Leonard Melodinow. I really don't know how to pronounce it. It's M-L-O-D-I-N-O-W. Actually, I was at the bookstore and one of the people working there recommended this book in the psychology section. So I took a look at it and it seems interesting. Uh, So looking forward to reading that this week and talking about it on next Monday's show. But let's talk about the book from this past week, and it was an important one, and one I was excited to read, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump by 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Who Assessed a President. And this book came about as a result of a conference that took place in March of this year in Yale called the Duty to Warn Conference, um, where many mental health professionals and different experts got together to talk about uh, their concern over our current president, Donald Trump. And then they decided to write this book and everyone had to provide um, their various essays or short chapters. I think there's about 20 some odd of them in there um, for the book within a few weeks and they just recently published it. And I'm glad I read the book to hear what they had to say um, because this is a topic many of us have been thinking about uh, and trying to understand our current president and what's going on with him psychologically and who is he and all those types of questions. And of course, it's hard to really know someone from afar and that brings me to one big issue and just even the existence of this book. So there's something called the Goldwater Rule that came about um, by the American Psychiatric Association that said that psychiatrists or mental health professionals cannot give diagnoses on someone that they have not evaluated in a formal one-on-one way. So you can't say this person uh, has this diagnosis unless you've actually treated them. And of course, if you've treated them, then you probably can't release that diagnosis unless they gave you a release or some kind of very unique situation. But this came about at the 1964... um, election where some psychiatrist weighed in on, uh, I think it was Barry Goldwater, and he was a Republican candidate, and apparently that swayed the election or had some impact, and they felt that this was not okay. And the uh, APA went a little bit further, saying that even you can't comment on 
presidential or uh, political um, figures, public figures. And so this really puts, in a way, a gag order on mental health professionals in talking about people who are running for office. And this itself, I think, is worth de- debating, and the book does talk about this, the different authors, different uh, members bring this up. But it's something to talk about. Can Should we just put a gag order on the people that might best understand human behavior and underlying issues and things of that nature? Or might it actually be good to include them in the debate? But of course, then you introduce the idea of people politicizing their expertise to favor their biases. So that becomes an issue too. So it's not a clear-cut issue, but I do think it would be important to include the experts' opinions um, from both sides and hopefully independence and make it more balanced. Um, But I think it is important we should not just say, well, because we have this rule now uh, that's been in place for 50 some odd years, let's not say anything as mental health experts or mental health professionals. I think that's not a good idea. So they do say they there is this idea of the Goldwater rule where you shouldn't diagnose from afar and you shouldn't make a statement. But however, they also add, as the title of the conference was, mental health professionals have a duty to warn. So if I have a client and they are suicidal or if they are homicidal, and if they're, let's say, homicidal, um, both For both of those reasons, I might break confidentiality, but if they're homicidal, I have a duty to warn the other if it's an identifiable other. So if a client says, I'm going to kill my boss tomorrow when I go to work, uh, I have to do something about that. I have to warn that individual. I have to warn law enforcement. I have to get involved. And this is from the Tarasov case, which is another uh, landmark case and ruling and creates something that as a mental health professional, you have a duty to warn when someone says they're going to inflict some kind of great harm on someone else or even property that's extreme. You have to do something about it. You have to warn law enforcement and the other individuals. So the duty to warn that they're talking about is they're saying they have a duty to warn the American public and the world because they feel that this man is dangerous. And related to that, they also talk about, and several of the authors bring this up, that you don't. they don't have to diagnose him Um, But they can talk about dangerousness, which is not the same thing. So they don't have to give a specific diagnosis, but they can talk about his dangerousness um, without giving a diagnosis. And that's what several of them mentioned throughout the book. Now, I should add that just because someone has a mental illness doesn't mean they can't be a good leader or a good president. And I know that might sound odd. Um, but to me, it does make sense. So first of all, there was a study uh, looking at presidents up to 1974, and I think it was about half or more than half of them were found to have a diagnosable uh, mental health disorder. Um, and to me, that's not that surprising because, again, the rates of mental illness are not that low. People think it's very low, but if you add them all up together, it's very possible you or someone you know are it's very likely you or someone you know has a diagnosable disorder. Um, But as I was saying, you don't have to be a bad leader if you have one of those diagnoses because Abraham Lincoln, it's pretty clear that he dealt with depression, but he is considered one of the greatest presidents in American history um, because of what he was able to do, especially during the Civil War, and he was battling depression. So just because someone has mental illness itself does not mean they're not fit for office or fit to lead. Um, 
the issues are more nuanced than that. So we can't just say, okay, so-and-so has this anxiety disorder. They can never be president. They can never be a CEO. They never could be this or that. It's, it's not that clear. Lots of people in leadership positions have different mental illnesses and that's, that can be okay. But here we're looking more at things like the dangerousness. Now, the book itself, to give first an overview, I did enjoy it. You, you felt like you were in the presence of lots of great minds, the different writers um, brought different perspectives, expressing their thoughts based on their expertise and ideas they had. So overall, I really learned a lot, not just about Donald Trump, but just in general. They shared a lot of history that I thought was very interesting, and uh, I learned a lot from that. Um, that being said, I also did feel their bias at times. Um, the, the authors in the introduction, they acknowledge that mental health professionals tend to be liberal-leaning or left-leaning. So maybe it's no surprise that you get that feeling. But at times I felt that the authors went a little bit past where they should uh, and maybe sometimes even tried to be humorous or add some flair to some of the things they said that I actually think took away from the message by in some ways revealing a bias rather than sounding like unbiased professionals sharing their expert opinion. Um, however, I do think our current president is not mentally stable. I don't see him as fit for office. I mentioned this the day after the election when I did my show, that I was not happy that he won, um, not because he, he was not the candidate I preferred or that I would want to vote for or I did vote for, um, because that can happen in an election. You still might be upset, but it was more what he represented and how I saw him, um, his campaign that I felt was built on xenophobia and uh, bullying, bullying other candidates, bullying protesters at his rallies, bullying the media, whoever it was. To me, that was very disheartening, the way he became president. So it wasn't just uh, the candidate I voted for losing, um, but it was the way he became president. And I also got some messages on Facebook saying, well, what about other politicians? Shouldn't they get psychoanalyzed? And first of all, yes, I'm okay with that, with there being a discussion about that. Um, and also when I talked during the election days, I mentioned that I didn't think Hillary Clinton necessarily was the most perfect candidate or someone who um, I felt was very trustworthy in some ways. I thought she was a little too calculated and too much in the political system that had corrupted her over the years. Um, but when I compare her with Donald Trump, I think there's no comparison when we look at their mental states or how capable they are to handle a, a, a position of power. So the authors talk about various um, issues or things that Donald Trump might deal with. Now, one that's a very common one we hear and it shows itself the most is his narcissism. Now, again, narcissism, there is a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, but itself, it's a trait like any trait. It could start from very low to very high. And actually, it's good to have some degree of narcissism, of seeing yourself as special. You almost need that to survive or to push yourself forward or to try to get yourself um, in higher and higher places in a good way. So you want some degree of narcissism. We, I know it sounds like a bad word when we hear someone is narcissistic, but that's when we're talking about the extremes. So we all have it to a certain degree. If you have none, it actually could be a bad thing. But when we talk about someone who we label as a narcissist, even if we don't give them a diagnosis, we're saying someone 
who displays this this feeling of superiority, a need to be liked and admired and to have attention and to be um, told that they are good and special and will really do a lot to make sure they feel that way. So the narcissism is very clear with Donald Trump. We see it just in the way he um, talks about himself, the way his name is on lots of things or everything that he does. Uh, I think the narcissism is a very clear one. But just narcissism itself might not be so harmful. But what several of the authors talk about is describing him as, some, as someone who has malignant narcissism, which actually was a term that was developed by uh, Eric Fromm um, to describe lots of leaders. And it fits, I think, Donald Trump very clearly. So uh, it was later elaborated on by Otto Kernberg, uh, and he described four key components of malignant narcissism. And those are narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial behavior, paranoid traits, and sadism. Now, um, narcissistic personality disorder, having narcissism, again, that feeling uh, of needing to be superior, of needing to feel special, admired, having attention, and not able to acknowledge mistakes or shortcomings, um, and that kind of thing. But the next one is the antisocial behavior, um, or someone who has psycho, uh, psychopathy. And that's someone who has little remorse for other people. Um, these are people who have, they can lie, they can manipulate, they see other people as things that they can use, pawns to use in their own advantage. And personally, I see this strongly in Donald Trump. He does strike me as someone who has very little empathy, and that's something that people with narcissistic personality disorder, but even more people who are have antisocial personality disorder or, or psychopathic have, they have very little empathy. And that's something I think you very strongly feel when you hear him talk to people, whoever it is, and I don't ever get the feeling he cares about people. That That's the sense that I get. If he does express care, as narcissists do and as um, people with antisocial personality disorder do, it's usually as a means and end for themselves, either to get your approval, um, get your vote, get your money, um, or to feel good about it. They, they say, I love you because it makes them feel good to, to have you. Um, that's the feeling I get when he talks. I don't get this feeling of care or concern for anyone. That's something that concerns me, that we have someone in such a powerful position that I don't think cares about people at a, at a deep level or is concerned about their well-being. He's more concerned with how he appears and his station and situation, and that's very concerning to me. Now, I think a lot of politicians have that to some degree, but I think for him it's very extreme. Politicians are too focused, especially in the United States, on getting reelected and being liked. But I think when you look at someone like him, it's 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 to an extreme degree. Um, and I'll elaborate a bit on this more. But the other parts, paranoid traits, he definitely comes off very paranoid. Um, the way he talks about the media and consistently and constantly talking about fake news is concerning. Um, and people who are close to him see that. And the sadism, this idea of wanting, enjoying hurting people, he's expressed that too, um, saying things like punch the guy in the face when there's protesters at his rallies. And again, there just doesn't seem to be a concern for what happens to that individual. If someone is against him, 
they're they're an enemy, um, and that's unfortunate. Now, because this book had so much to talk about, uh, and it's such an important topic, I'm going to continue after the break talking about this book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump by Bandy Lee and other uh, experts in the mental health field. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Uh, discussing the book The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, written by 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts. I was describing before the break um, that several of the authors in the book describe Donald Trump as expressing what they describe as malignant narcissism, which Eric Fromm described as the quintessence of evil, uh, something uh, that he experiencing the... Uh, in Nazi Germany when he was in the concentration camps and uh, described as the most severe pathology, the root of the most vicious destructiveness and inhumanity. And we can see that this combination of being narcissistic, antisocial personality disorder, paranoid traits, traits and sadism would be a really bad combination. And I do think you can see that in Donald Trump. And I think that's what makes him dangerous, which makes him unfit to serve as the president. Uh, he does not strike me as someone I want making important decisions, especially decisions that involve nuance, like interacting with another strong leader. Um, and that's what I get concerned about. And a, a few authors actually mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was uh, in 1962. And although disaster was averted. It, it appeared that we were very close to being on the brink of a nuclear war with Russia. But John F. Kennedy gets a lot of credit for how he handled that situation where restraint was necessary, where it was important for him to hear the opinions of other people um, that disagreed with him. And that's something he did. He actually would leave meetings where they were going to be discussing ideas with his top officials so that they could actually discuss them without being swayed or tilt ideas into his favor. So he really wanted to, them to, to talk and think and express themselves and not to influence a discussion, which shows that he respected their opinions. But unlike someone who has a very strong degree of narcissism, um, he was able to accept that maybe he doesn't know everything that someone else maybe has a better understanding of things than he does. So that was one important thing, was that he was able to um, discuss with others and hear their opinions, their thoughts, their ideas. And another thing was he was able to put himself, himself in the shoes of his opponent. That's something else, else that I don't think Donald Trump would be good at because of the lack of empathy that he shows as he's, um, I think, displayed with the various world leaders he's talked to. He doesn't seem to put himself in someone else's shoes or think about things from their perspective. And John F. Kennedy, fortunately, was influenced by some people who mentioned that this was an important part of negotiating and being a leader was to put yourselves in the other person's shoes. If you just see them as a ruthless enemy, 
you're likely going to get yourself in trouble. And that's what, it, what would have happened likely if he had not thought about where the Russians were coming from during that sensitive 13 days. Um, we very likely might have seen a nuclear war, which who knows what the results of that would have been. But fortunately, he was able to have conversations with the Kremlin that led to a peaceful resolution and the prevention of disaster because he was able to hear from others, um, take time, understand what was going on, and also communicate with the other side with at least some level of respect as far as putting himself in their shoes to get to some type of resolution. And the author of that chapter talks about how he doesn't see Donald Trump uh, making those steps or taking those steps, and unfortunately I would have to agree with him. He does not seem to be someone that would want to hear the opinions of others and really take them into account. And even worse, I think he would be at putting himself in someone else's shoes and trying to reach a peaceful agreement. He um, has been quoted to say that he was wondering why we have nuclear weapons if we can't use them. Um, you know, basically, he sees things the way I see it, very much from his own side. Well, we have this power, why don't we just take other people out? Who cares if we kill other people? Um, now, America itself has done a lot of that, but the way I think he could possibly go about it would be very concerning. So I have concerns about him in a high-pressure situation, and of course, when we're talking about the President of the United States, that's possibly the most high-pressure uh, position you can have. The decisions uh, he or she could make could influence the lives of millions, if not billions of people in a matter of seconds. And you want someone whose judgment you trust. And I think based on his psychological profile, I would not put him in the, the position of that I would trust him. Or I would not say that I trust him in that sense. Um, the concern also is when someone has a high degree of narcissism and also these other traits, as Donald Trump seems to display, they're in constant need of approval, constant need of being right and being told they're good and special. And when things don't go their way, they'll go to extreme lengths to change the situation, whether that's um, propaganda or trying to put out, um, it was funny, I almost said fake news, which I know is his favorite term, but alternative facts as it came to be known to make sure people believe his side, or maybe even literally taking out people um, in other countries and in other times. This has been uh, literally killing opponents or journalists who were reporting things you did not like. Now, fortunately, in the United States, you can't do that, but he does try to do the best he can by silencing them in different ways, even bringing up taking away their licenses to, to be media outlets. He does try to silence them in whatever way he can. Um, and... This was very clear from the first day he was in office when the first uh, press briefing that Sean Spicer did, the, the main focus was on making sure people knew that there were more people at his camp, at his inauguration than ever in history and more people watching around the world. This was the focus of that meeting or that first uh, interaction with the press was getting this out there, showing how important it was for him to be the best to be number one, to make sure no one had more than him. Uh, this feeling of, that's where the narcissism shows itself, that feeling that I have to be the best and I have to make sure it's not disputed, even if I have to say whatever I want. And even Sean Spicer would say, the president believes a lot of times. 
which is interesting. So we weren't talking about even facts. We were saying his belief, which doesn't matter when we're talking about number of people there. We're not talking about a matter of hope or faith or belief. We're talking about numbers. Um, but nonetheless, that shows how important it is. And this is the concern that several of the authors expressed, is that when he is going to face disapproval as he has, or when he faces challenges to being the best or being special or being superior, he's going to fight harder and harder to try to change that situation. And that's usually going to be in a reactionary way. And that's a concern. That's something he's already displayed so far. Um, and I'll, I'd say I was very heartbroken. He's attacked a lot of people, but when he was attacking, I don't say attacking, but had a Twitter war of sorts um, with the widow of uh, the Green Beret who passed away a few weeks ago, uh, that to me was very heartbreaking because even with, in this case, where he had someone who just lost her husband and she mentioned about the phone call, and she didn't really attack him, but did say the things she did not like. He could not in that moment say, okay, this woman lost her husband. Her husband is a hero. So he talks how much about how much he loves the military and how upset he is when people disrespect the military by not standing for the national anthem, which itself is not really an accurate statement. But nonetheless, um, and how much he respects the military and how important they are to him and how he doesn't want anyone to disrespect the military in any way. But here he was, in my eyes, being disrespectful, saying that, uh, basically saying that what she was saying was false, in some ways saying she was lying about the phone call that they had. And to me, that was pretty devastating. And unfortunately, not, in some ways, not that surprising at the same time, because the feeling I get, or the signs he's shown is that he doesn't have any empathy or feeling of remorse for anything he does. He doesn't say, sorry, I made a mistake. He almost always has doubled down and attacked harder whoever he gets into an issue with. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, maybe I was wrong. He says, you are wrong and you are even worse. Uh, this case, he held back a little bit, but still uh, attacked her. So it was very disappointing to see that. Um, some authors, even in the case one specifically, talks about him having delusional disorder, that his grandiosity, this feeling of being superior, being better than other people, makes it's almost to the point of being a delusion where it's so out of touch with reality and shares. Um, many times where he has lied about things in very clear ways and very provable ways, um, but maybe this is a display of a delusion that he has, and that's a concern. So that's what one author talked about in this book. Now, a lot of the book talks about Donald Trump personally, but there's also uh, a portion of the book looking at America itself because, yes, we can focus, focus exclusively on Trump, but the fact is over 62 million people voted for him. So we can't just say he's this one problem or one issue. We have to look at the bigger picture and see what that might reflect um, the bullying, the hatred already existing, or also people projecting their own narcissism onto him. You know, it kind of reminds me of sports teams, and anyone watching the baseball game until late last night can feel that up and down that you feel watching sports. And a big part of that has to do with, yes, it's your team, it's your city, maybe all those types of things, but also you identify with them. And this is very true when we talk about political figures even more strongly. And a lot of people projected themselves onto him. Uh, maybe they want someone 
who is uh, the bully who can protect them. They think the bully is on their side. Or we want someone who says they're omnipotent. They don't make mistakes. They're perfect. They're so powerful. And we merge with them and they're going to lead us and they're going to protect us. So he pulls for a lot of that. Donald Trump definitely did at the Republican National Convention. He was talking about how horrible things were in the United States. And he said, I alone can fix it. And I think to most people that smells so strongly of narcissism um, and not for me, something I want in a leader, but for many people, that's going to be a very strong pull, this feeling of, wow, he, he is that powerful and I'm going to be with him and on his side and he's going to save us. And that could be a really nice feeling. I think an unrealistic one and one steeped in magical thinking, but of course there's something there. We have to, again, accept there's some appeal that if over 62 million people voted for him, there was something there. Of course, on both sides, there's some people that vote along party lines no matter what. And um, there's some people, and most people are single-issue voters. So if maybe it's health care or taxes or immigration or some single issue that's going to drive their vote almost either way. And whoever, whichever candidate is on their side with that issue they're going to vote that way. But nonetheless, it's undeniable the appeal that Donald Trump had. Of course, he won the election. There was an appeal, and that's worth looking at. So this book, I think, is a, is a good book to read. I'd actually recommend reading it. I do feel that it, of course, does reflect some bias in the writers that I at times thought was unnecessary. Not the biases, of course, that's internal and they have, but even in how they expressed it. Because ideally, this would be something that appeals to people that voted for him or didn't vote for him. I think most people did not that did not vote for Donald Trump already agree they don't like him, so you don't need much convincing there. But hopefully we can create a discussion because I really do think that our current president um, is not fit to serve in that office. As I say that, I feel very grateful to live in a country where you can actually say something like that without severe consequences. Um, but I think he does display the malignant narcissism that was one of the big things talked about in this book. That And that is a scary person to have in power because they want to hold that power. They want to feel good and feel special and they can go to extreme lengths to make sure they keep that power. And when reality stops... Uh, ceases to meet that need of being superior, being perfect, not making mistakes, and things happen and criticism flies in their face and things don't go well, then they actually they get lower and uglier in how they respond. That's the problem. They don't usually get better individuals like this. They only get worse. And the more power you give them, the worse they become. And then actually they try to get more and more power because... It's really this fight to, to keep themselves feeling that way. And when it comes to narcissism and someone with this type of character, one thing that should be also stated is that, is that although when you see him, you think, wow, he just really loves himself and likes himself so much and feels so good, or you might even think he's so confident, you know, that's what I should be like. Maybe someone admires that. But to me, it reminds me of the, the saying, um, confidence is quiet arrogance is very loud. When someone is confident, 
you, you see it and you'll feel it, but it's not in your face. When someone is really in your face about how great they are, it's a sign of arrogance, which means it's coming from a place of actually insecurity and weakness, not feeling good enough. So when you see someone like him, um, and there's many people like him in varying degrees, who can't say sorry, who won't acknowledge making a mistake, who have to constantly tell you about how good they are, how great they are, how they know the most about some topic more than anyone, how they're the best at this, the best at that, that tells you they don't feel very good about themselves. Somewhere there's a lack of feeling enough, and they're constantly fighting against that. So underneath this strong persona of being the best, being the strongest, the smartest, the superior, feeling that they deserve all the attention and admiration, underneath that there's this feeling of inferiority of being less than, of not feeling enough. And really that need for admiration comes from this place of trying to fill that void of not being enough. And of course, it never works. It's kind of like blowing air in a balloon that has a hole in it. You have to keep blowing to keep the balloon um, at full, you know, taking up as much space as it can, but it's exhausting and they have to keep doing that. And if they don't, it's going to deflate. Uh, in his case, that defense seems very strong because you don't see him display any of that very strongly of having that insecurity. But I think anyone watching him with a discerning eye will see that, that this is someone who does not feel very good about themselves, that actually does not love themselves, even though they're putting their name everywhere, or actually they're putting their name everywhere because they don't love themselves. So that's my concern about who we have in office. I don't think he is fit to serve that position. And I think the authors in this book did take a courageous stand to say, although there is this Goldwater rule that states that we should not make a diagnosis, really make a strong public comment about a political figure, um, we're going to go ahead and do so because we feel the duty to warn the public that this man is dangerous. And I would agree with them about that. So hope you'll read this book and please let me know if you agree or disagree about what I've said or about the book itself. I think that adds to the discussion and I want to learn more. And I think the only way we're going to figure things out is if we actually talk with one another, even when we disagree or especially when we disagree. So we're going to go on to our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. back um we're in the last segment of the show you know i was talking about this book the dangerous case of donald trump um and i really do, do hope people read it and the reason why the, the authors wrote it as quickly as they did and they could was to make sure it would reach the hands of the public and it has been flying off bookshelves and um i think it's a great book because it opens up this issue of um looking at the dangerousness of this president uh, which I think is true, but also, again, I think it should be more of a discussion rather than one-sided. These mental health experts have shared what they think, but I hope we can have a discussion. And the authors even talk about, or what one set of authors at the end of the book, that why don't we have um, some kind of neurological or neuropsychiatric testing for people that are going to serve high positions like vice president and president? And they say, not just for the case of this president, although um, they did give uh, recommendations that it be done, and it has not been done so. 
on Donald Trump. But in general, to have that and have that done every year, presidents sometimes take office at older age and they can have cognitive impairments or various other issues that can get in the way of their ability to serve their very high positions. And it might be worth looking at um, giving some kind of valuation. I thought that was an interesting uh, you know, idea too. But at the same time, that's going to create a lot of controversy and it's going to be hard to to set that straight, making sure that it's done in a bipartisan way, that biases don't get introduced, that people think it's fair. And, and what would that be, be that criteria of when someone could not serve and would not be fit for office? So it's, it's complex, but I think just because it's complex doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Actually, we need to talk about it to figure out what we can do to, to get to a better place about that. But I think it is kind of interesting to think that the highest position does not need uh, any kind of screening to make sure you're fit for that that office. Um, and that's something worth talking about. Um, you know, I'll change subjects. I wanted to mention at an uh, event I'll be speaking at this Thursday. So I hope you'll join me at the Network of Iranian-American Professionals of Orange County, NEPOC, as they have their November event this Thursday, November 2nd, at the Hilton Irvine on MacArthur Boulevard from 6 to 9 p.m. Um, and you can get tickets at the door or you can go to nipoc.org for more information, nipoc.org. Um, and I'm going to be giving a talk titled Redefining Success. And in a way, we can make a parallel to what we're talking about today because I'll talk about a lot of different things when it comes to that. But one of the things for me when I talk about redefining success is that sometimes people would say this idea of, well, if Donald Trump is president, then he's successful. Or if someone has millions of dollars or um, has this or that, they have to, that's success. And that's the way we measure it is by these these uh, rules or these indexes that I think are actually not what we should be looking at. And if we look at success, what most people think um, if I tell you to close your eyes and imagine someone successful, you think of probably someone rich, someone famous, um, something like that. Those are really the two main things that probably come to your mind. But to me, that's not really what living a successful life means. Um, you can be successful in your career or you can be successful financially, but to me, that's not success. Or if you want to call that success, that, that shouldn't be what we were striving for, um, and actually, when I was approached to give this talk, they said, you know, we see that a lot of the young people are trying to figure out a way to be successful, and they meant in their business, but also be happy. And they're seeing that being a problem. And what I think is that even just that dichotomy, sometimes we call this work-life balance or this idea of can you be happy or can you be successful, is the wrong approach. Yes, balance is going to be important in how we live our life, how we allocate our time. Um, but what I think is more important, more than success financially or in your career, or more than happiness even, is living a life of meaning. And to me, living a meaningful life is, is a big pillar of success or how we should measure our life, living a life of meaning. Um, and I've kind of joked recently about this, uh, idea that I've had an, a war on happiness or an attack on happiness recently where I've had a few books um, 
in recent weeks that have, in a way, attacked happiness or attacked this idea of happiness being the ultimate goal. We've always thought that is being happy is the only thing that matters, and that should be the most important thing. Um, but happiness it depends on how we look at it. So there was the happiness trap. Um, there was the power of meaning, which also talked about that amongst others. But usually when we think of happiness, we're talking about that good feeling in the moment or feeling good. Um, and sometimes we, we, we think of that as being happy, and that could get us very short-term focus. But there's another way of looking at happiness, which is more in the meaningful or living a life of meaning, and that's feeling good about your life, feeling fulfilled. And that's what I think we need to be focusing on. So we focus that our life has to have meaning. And in having meaning, rather than focusing on what I get, what I take, what I receive, it's a focus more on what do I give? What do I contribute to society? What do I contribute to my family? What do I give to others? It's more in that idea. So uh, there's some studies showing that the people that are focused on this idea of happiness and feeling good, it almost creates this kind of hedonism or this feeling of making sure I get, I take, I'm not giving a lot, but I'm receiving more. And we think that's going to make us happy. Uh, almost that's the formula many people follow in life. The more I can uh, get and the less I give, the better it is. People work and they're like, oh, I got out of work early. And that's that, that was awesome. And I'm still going to get paid. And that, that's kind of a good feeling. Now, of course, this usually reflects someone doing a job that is unmeaningful to them that doesn't, they don't value, so they don't want to do the work. But there's this idea that if you can give a little and get a lot, you're the winner in life. But when we look at people's lives, that's not what makes them feel good at the end of their lives if they gave a little. If you gave a little love and you received a lot, you're not going to feel good. Um, and actually, that's one thing you're almost never going to feel bad about is how much love you gave to people that mattered to you. You're not going to feel bad about that. The more you give, actually, the better you're going to feel. But most ideas of success focus on what I get. Do I get fame, which means attention, uh, recognition, validation, people admiring me? Do I get money? Do I get wealth? Where I get money and I have all these things that I can buy things, which are more things for me to get and have. We focus on more what we get. And that's the issue I have with most uh, traditional definitions of success is focusing on what I get as the focus rather than focusing on what I give, which actually, if you give and do it in a way that you care about, you will still also receive at the end. Um, if you're passionate about what you do, if you do something that's meaningful for you and you're good at it, you're going to make money and get even attention and validation and all of those things. And that can be fine, but your focus is more on what you give. So I've always said, I don't mind people um, becoming famous or wanting to even be famous as long as that's not their focus or their reason for doing it. So if you want to sing, that's wonderful. Um, but if you want to just become a famous singer so that people admire you, you have lots of fans and you get all the attention and fame and money that comes along with it, that I don't think is a good thing. If you want to sing because you're passionate about it, it's in you. When you sing, you feel so good. Um, you feel like you have a gift to share with people, with your music, of connecting them with their own emotions, of making them feel things, of sharing that art. 
that's incredible. That's great. And then if you become famous as a result of that, that's wonderful. But if your focus is on what you give, you're going to be, one, I think a better artist, but secondly, you'll be much uh, more fulfilled, have more meaning in your life and have that uh, feeling of happiness. That's more of the fulfilled feeling of happiness that we all should be looking for rather than just trying to get that attention. And I think with things like social media and the internet, this feeling of just becoming famous for no reason is becoming more popular. And I think that's very concerning. People are not focused on what they're going to give. They're focused on what they can get. I can maybe get thousands of likes or go viral or become famous, not for doing something good, not for contributing or giving anything, but just people are going to like me and somehow I become famous. And that to me is really a concern. And even just more of the more traditional ideas of success where it looks at making money and that being the goal i've worked with lots of people and they think that once they make this amount of money they're going to be happy or once they can buy this car or that house they're going to be happy and although they might feel a spike in how good they feel for a while um, it can be like a drug they feel good for a little while but they go back to where they were it doesn't give that feeling of fulfillment and that feeling that they really want, the happiness is fleeting, that feeling is fleeting. Um, And this is another part of my conception of success, is that it's not just about be doing well in one aspect of your life. If you do well in your career, that's great, but how are you doing as a father or husband, mother, wife, citizen, um, brother, sister, whatever else it may, other, may be, other roles in your life. To me, success is not just measured in one aspect of your life. It's about who you are as a whole in the various domains of who you are. If you're not being a good father or mother, to me, you're not a success. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, how many followers you have, how famous you are. To me, that person is not a successful person. They might be a successful entrepreneur, a successful singer, a successful businessman or businesswoman, but they are not a successful person if they are not being a success in all the aspects of their life. And that's what we are asked to do, is not just be good at one thing or one area. And unfortunately, when we look at success, we just think about money and uh, fame, but we want to be a good person and live a good life. That should be what we consider success. So that's just a little bit of what I'll be talking about this Thursday. Again, this is the NEPOC event, the network of Iranian-American professionals of Orange County. That's November 2nd from 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets are available at the door at the Hilton Irvine, so I hope you'll join me there. I wanted to announce the book of the week again for this week. It's Subliminal by Leonard Ludenow. Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. And again, it's a book I have not read before, so I can't really say I recommend it yet, it looks interesting. And as always, please send me books you uh, would like to recommend for the show, for the books of the week, and um, I'll take a look at them and possibly add them to the list. All right. Thank you to everyone who is listening out there. And thank you to Amir, who is here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.